Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Psalms chapter 65, 13 verses, and just a wonderful little chapter right here uh, as we walk our way through the book of Psalms. I think a chapter you'll find much encouragement this evening in. This is kind of how it happens for me. Uh, each psalm that I spend some time reading, rehearsing, studying, working through for a sermon kind of quickly becomes my favorite psalm. This happens for me in book studies. I studying the book of Exodus. I go, wow, Exodus is one of my favorite books. Then we're studying the book of Joshua. Oh, Joshua is one of my favorite books. And then studying the book of Galatians. Oh, Galatians is my favorite book, right? It kind of happens as we work our way through psalms as well. I say, oh man, this psalm. This is one of my favorite psalms, and I don't think I would have said that before I began spending time preparing this sermon, but it's a wonderful psalm, Psalm chapter 65, and if you found your place, let's stand together out of respect for the reading of God's Word. One final stretch of the legs, Psalm 65, verse 1 through verse 13. Look at, look at the superscript. To the chief musician, a psalm and song of David. That's interesting. They actually used this as a song that they sang when they gathered together. Many people believe that this was a song that they sang at the harvest festival, the time where they went out, collected the harvest, and then sang this very song in response to the collection that they just received from the field. This is a wonderful psalm for this time of the year. Look at verse number 1. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me, and as for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. So blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causeth to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts and we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house and even in thy holy temple. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation. Now who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of all them that are afar off upon the sea? which by his strength setteth fast the mountains being girded with power, which stilleth the noise of the sea, the noise of the waves, and the tumult of the people. And they also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. Thou makest the outgoings of the morning and the evening to rejoice. But thou visitest the earth and waterest it, Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn when thou hast so provided it. Thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly. Thou settlest the furrows thereof. Thou makest soft with showers. Thou blessest the springing thereof. Thou crownest the year with thy goodness and thy paths drop fatness. They drop upon the pastures of the wilderness and little hills rejoice on every side and the pastures are clothed with flocks and the valleys also are covered with corn and they shout for joy, they also sing. Our Heavenly Father, use this psalm to teach us great things about you 
And in your son's name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. You may be seated. Do you ever feel like life is out of control? Do you ever feel like you can't gain control? I mean, if you could just get one or two steps ahead, then maybe, just maybe, you would have a little control. Have you ever really thought about how little control we actually have? I mean, we, we like to think we have control, but do we really? I mean, we like to think we have set schedules and things to do and places to go and people to meet, stuff to accomplish. But how much of that is actually in our control? And, and how much of that can be out of control just that fast? A, a, tra a traffic jam on the 710. And we thought we were going to be at work at 8. But man, that traffic jam, it showed us that we had no control. And the, the bad medical diagnosis. We thought we had control and we had plans, but man, we, we were delivered news, man, the worst news of, of any kind. We contracted a disease or our body has an infection and surgery is required. It's, it's not very often that we like to think of life that way, but that is often the way that life is. We have plans, we have schedules, we have things we like to do, and we like to assume that we are in control, but most of the time we are not. And often God brings us into places in our lives that cause us to realize just how out of control our life really is. So I want you for a minute, just, to, just for a minute, think about how little control you have. Now, Think about this. God has no idea what that feels like. God has never looked down on the world and thought, oh my goodness, things are out of my control. God has never looked down. God does not look down. God will never look down on the world and see the things that are happening and feel or think or know that he is out of control. God is always in control. And God does not always do what you want him to do, but God is always in control. God is not always listening to your advice, but God is always in control. And God is always in control, even when things seem to us as if they are out of control. God sees all things. God controls all things. It is also true that God sees sin as he sees disobedience. It's also true that God sees sins and disobedience that needs to be forgiven or made right. And God sees things that need to be straightened out. And God sees us and he wants us to see these things the same way that he sees them. But God does not see us or see circumstances or see situations or diagnosis or traffic jams or financial news or relationship problems and ever have a sense of despair or that he is losing control. Our God is in full control. It was Corey Timboom who said, with God there are no problems, only plans. I thought that was a great way to put it. No problems, only plans. 
This is really what the psalm is driving at. The psalm drives at one question. How much control does God have? And when is God in control? And how great is the control that he does have? How big do you see your God and how small do you see yourself? The psalm drives at one question. How big is God? How big is the God we serve? How big is the God we worship? How big is the God we love? The psalm also provides one simple answer. God is bigger than anything you will ever face. How big is God? God is bigger than all of your troubles. How big is God? God is bigger than all of your needs. Well, how big is God? God is bigger than any relationship fracture that you may face. How big is your God? The psalmist goes on the record to say, we do not serve a teeny tiny God who fits in our teeny tiny pocket, who cannot guarantee the future. He cannot guarantee himself. He has no power to bring it about. He is a pygmy God that we can put in our box and carry along with us. That is not the God that we serve. We serve a God who is big and great and mighty and does what he wants. He does it when he wants. He has absolute control over everything on the earth. It was nothing outside of the control of God. The occasion of the psalm, Bible commentators would tell us, are really a combination of two events. Israel has received what is an apparent victory in battle, something for which they prayed for, that God miraculously intervened and flexed His muscles on their behalf. And while God is flexing them, his muscles and delivering them a victory in battle, God is also bringing about this remarkable bounty of harvest. That's all the picture at the end of the Psalms. Really, verse 9 to verse 13. Speak of pastures running over and fruit abounding and corn growing and crops advancing. So they have received a needed victory in battle, and when they returned home, they returned home to a bountiful harvest. How God gave them victory over their enemies, but God also showered them with blessings untold. In fact, the psalmist sees every blessing on the side of each and every mountain in Israel as singing out to the greatness, the bigness, the control that our God actually has. You see it in verse number 13. It's really how the psalm ends. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys are also covered over with corn. And they shout for joy. And they also sing. And what are they singing? What are they shouting? What are they gathering there for? They're singing and shouting and gathering about the great control that our big God has. Our God is big enough to create the universe, to uphold it by the word of his power, to providentially govern its direction, and to single-handedly bring about all things precisely the way that he planned it to be. The psalm breaks down in three ways. Verse 1 to 4, you see the grace-hearing God of prayer. Verse 5 to 8, you see the miracle-working God of power. 
And verse 9 to 13, you see the gift-giving God of plenty. We'll take it in three strides. The grace-hearing God of prayer. Look at verse 1. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. And unto thee shall the vow be performed. The psalmist is saying it is the duty of God's people to praise God. So there's been some sort of vow, and in this vow they owed to God out of response to all that God has done for them. They owed to God their praise. There was apparently something that they were praying for, asking God to answer for them. God did answer it for them, and the vow due back to His holy name was their praise. This is what they're giving in verse number one. Praise waiteth for thee. Why? Because unto thee was the vow given, and now it has been performed. So what we said we would do in our prayer to you, you delivered, provided for us, and now it is rightly due back your name. It is the duty of God's people. It is the responsibility of God's people. It is the privilege of God's people to praise God over and over and over again for all the good things that God does in our lives. So it's a different verse. Verse number one, praise waiteth for thee, and unto thee the vow will be performed. It's a different verse because it rings of thanksgiving tones. And I know we're not in November. We're really close. But how many of you know we can be thankful to God even when it's not November? And how many of you know the vow, the duty, the responsibility, and really the privilege of the Christian is to be thankful in our hearts and responses to God's good kindness that He shows us over and over and over again? This is the grace-hearing God of prayer, though. Why? Because verse 2, because thou that hearest prayer. So God is, hear me, God is big enough to hear your prayers. Just let that settle for a second. That when you and I pray, the God of the universe actually listens. Think of how rare it is for someone to actually listen to what you have to say. Customer service doesn't listen to what you have to say. Your husband or wife, they don't listen to what you have to say. We all know our children certainly do not listen to what we have to say. But the God of the universe listens when we pray. God is big enough to hear our prayers. So this, this, is, this is the question in response to the truth. Do we live according to the great truth that when we pray, the God of the universe turns His attention our way? The prayers that they offered were answered. The prayers that they offered for a bountiful harvest were answered. The prayers that they they offered in response to the difficulty and the attack and the enemy that they faced, it was answered. They offered prayers. Those prayers were answered. Why? Because God is big enough to hear your prayers and mine. In our prayer, when we call out to God, we never get sent to voicemail. 
And these men, these women, these worshipers understood that. They understood that the thing that they were enjoying, the benefit they had just received, was not because they were strong in battle. It's not because they were diligent in the harvest. It's because they made a prayer and God solely, only, provided for them and answered their prayer. And they are in response to a prayer answering, prayer hearing God. They are praising him for that. God is big enough. How big is God? God is big enough to hear your prayer. God's big enough to hear my prayer. That by itself is enough truth alone to cause us to praise God day and night. Praise Him in the morning. Praise Him in the evening. Praise Him in the noonday. Praise Him when the sun's up, sun's down. Praise Him at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks in between. Praise Him all the day, all ye saints. Get to the end of the Psalms, and this is what you'll read over and over. Chapters on chapters of the psalmist just saying, praise Him. Praise Him on water. Praise Him on mountain. Praise Him in the rain, the snow, the sun, the ocean, the desert. Praise God at all times. Why? Because our God is big enough and worthy enough of all our praise. God is big enough to hear our prayers. God is big enough to forgive our sins. That's really what it says in verse number three. Iniquities prevail against me. And as for our transgressions, for thou shalt purge them away. So David left in his sin knows that he could never see God in his sin. So God call, David calls out rather to God for forgiveness. God hears David's call for forgiveness. And then God responds by offering to David forgiveness. Iniquities prevail against me. And as for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. It's an interesting word. The word is purge them away. It actually is translated in other places as atone, make atonement for them. That David left in his sin, he could not honestly, he could not rightly approach God. And yet David comes into the very presence of God and praises God for being a prayer answering God in that God has forgiven David of his sin. When we approach God honestly, the first thing that we must do is reckon that we are sinners at best. I'm not talking about sinners doing bad things. I'm talking about even in the good things we do, we are actually sinful men and women. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Why? Because even when we do good things, sometimes we do them with the wrong motivations. And when we do good things with wrong motivations, I'm going to do this, everybody sees me, thinks I'm a good guy, that actually makes that right thing a wrong thing. So David's praise begins with the recognition that he is a sinner. There is one reason why David can give praise to God, and it is because David is empowered by God's grace in order to be able to even sing praises to God. Two things happen here then. First, the realization that our iniquities prevail against us. Second, the realization that God purges away our transgression. The first is conviction of the sin that we have committed. Second is the forgiveness made available through Christ for the sin that we have done. 
To have conviction without forgiveness is to live a life of despair. But to have forgiveness without conviction makes life superficial. It makes our praise empty. Why do we praise God in the morning and the evening? Just because God gives us good things? Just because we enjoy His gifts? No, we praise God because God made it possible for our sin to be forgiven and for us to dwell with Him at all times. God pardons our sin and then invites us to live with Him. That's verse number 4. But blessed is the man whom thou choosest, whom thou causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. And we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even thy holy temple. So God purges our sin in that God removes the guilt of sin from the believing man or woman. God atones our sin, makes atonement for our sin, purges, cleanses us, removes that sin from us. How? How does God remove sin from us? Does he sweep it under the rug and pretend like it never happened? No. There's a wonderful illustration given to us, given to us in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they saw their nakedness in that they ate the fruit and disobeyed God. And then God walked in the garden in the cool of the day as his habit was to do. And then God calls out to Adam and Eve. He asks them why they disobeyed. And then he provided for them a lamb and shed its blood and covered them with its skin and applied the blood of that sacrificial lamb to their account. So the way that God purges our sin is through a substitutionary sacrifice. For the psalmist, for the Old Testament saints, it was a sacrifice of an animal. But you get to Hebrews, and Hebrews teaches you that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Those were merely Pointers, road signs, indicators pointing to the greatest sacrifice that would ever be given. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that Lamb of God, that's Christ. So God sent Christ for you and me and for all those throughout the pages of history to provide a covering for them. Think about that for a second. Think of it. Verse number 3. The iniquities prevail against me, singular tense. And as for our, plural tense, transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. When sin is too heavy for you, when it is too heavy for me, who makes atonement for sin? Who amends sin? Who purges sin? The answer is God and God alone. But God atones all sin. There is no amount of sin that is too much for the atoning work of the cross of Christ. Maybe you have blown it over and over and over again. Maybe you feel stuck in that same pattern of sin. Maybe you feel paralyzed by your sin and you think, oh, well, God can't possibly forgive me for the bad stuff I did. David is saying, no, 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 no. Our God is bigger than that. God is bigger than your sin. Where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. And David is speaking Apostle Paul language. Hey, God is bigger than your sin. Any of it. And all of it combined. 
Notice this, God pardons their sin. But then God invites them into his house. It's one thing to stand in the court and have the judge declare you innocent, even though you're guilty. It's another thing altogether for the judge to invite you into his family. And that's exactly what God does. That the people that God pardons, he brings into his family. He welcomes them into his house. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house. I wonder how many of you in the room have ever been wronged or sinned against? Can I see? Raise your hand. Somebody has done you wrong or sinned against you? Okay. And when they did that, did you invite them over to your house? Did you say, hey, I know you just sinned against me, hurt me, really, really attacked me, wounded me, said mean things against me, made me feel terrible or like trash. And I, I understand you wronged me, but would you like to come over to my house and not just have dinner, but live in the spare bedroom? No, you didn't. But God did. That God is bigger than your sin. God is bigger than my sin. God is bigger than any of your sin. And God is bigger than all of your sin combined. He's a grace-hearing God of prayer. But He's a miracle-working God of power. That's verse 5 to 8. Look at verse 5. By terrible things and righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God, of our salvation. This, this is the way that David is writing, saying, Christian, take heart. God is in control, and God has the power to be in control. Spurgeon writes about this passage. He says, we earnestly pray for something, and then God answers, and we say, yikes. God shows up and does. The words are terrible things in righteousness. That God has answered David's prayer, but God has answered David's prayer in a way that was amazing to David. The phrase, terrible things, is what we might understand as awe-inspiring things. That God did not just answer our prayer, but that God answered our prayer exceedingly, abundantly, above all that David asked or thought. That God answers our prayer in awesome ways. That God answers our prayer in ways that shock us. And not only do we dwell with God forever, but God gets us through with what we are dealing with right now. That's what he's saying. By terrible things in righteousness, thou wilt answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth and them that are far off upon the sea. David uses then three image, three images, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. They all communicate another image about how chaotic or trouble-filled our lives can be. Three images that cause us to feel small, but that cause us to realize how big our God is. Three images. The image of the mountain in verse number 6, which by his strength set us fast the mountains being girded with power. So David is saying, when you walk up to a mountain, how big do you feel? How strong do you feel? You don't feel big and you don't feel strong. You feel very small standing at the bottom of the mountain. Well, God is not small at the bottom of the mountain. God sits over all of the mountains of all of the world because he holds them together with his power. That's what he's saying. 
Even the very mountains would fall apart if God were not keeping them together at this very moment. Look, which by his strength setteth fast the mountains being girded, held together, kept in place by his, with power. With whose power? His power. With whose strength? His strength. So mountains make you feel small, but mountains are small compared to our God. Look at verse number seven. David uses another image, an image of a sea. Which stealeth, the, which stealeth the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people. Who can stop the ocean? Who can make the ocean be quiet? Who can make the ocean obey them? Who can pause the waves? Who can still it? Not you, not me, but God can. So David is saying God controls everything. God controls the largest mountains. In fact, he controls all the mountains. God controls the roughest seas. Do you get the images? He's standing on this tall mountain, long journey, big problem, standing right in the middle of my path. My God owns that, holds that together by his power. I mean, the rough seas that threaten to tip my boat over and cause me to drown, my God can still it at the, at the just mention of its name. And not just that, David actually goes another step farther. He says, and the tumult of the people, they also that dwell in the, utter, uh, the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. The largest mountains, the roughest seas, and the cruelest of all dictators or nations. There is nothing outside of God's control. Mountains, oceans, nations, God rules them all. God rules universally and God rules alone. There is no other God. And this God who rules mountains, oceans, and nations, this God is working his power on behalf of his people. Hear me. Nations are just as submissive to God as the ocean is. It's no different for him. Syria, North Korea, the Middle East, Russia, the United States, elections, congressmen, presidents, senators, kings, queens, emperors, they all bow to our God. That God is in complete control. Big mountains, rough seas, cruel dictators. God is in control of it all. I'm not asking you tonight if you know this, because I believe you know it. I'm, I'm asking you, do you trust it? Do you trust that God is in control or do you pretend that you are? So when the waves of your life are great, where do you go? When the mountains of your life are big, how do you act? When the enemies of your life are vicious, where do you turn? Do you go to God? Do you run to his strength? Or do you attempt to do things in your own strength? The mountains, the seas, the nations, that would include the health of your children. That would include the state of your finances. That would include political landscapes. It's all under the control of our good and great and big God. 
It's a grace here in God of prayer. It's a miracle work in God of power. That alone is enough, but it's not, David doesn't stop. It's the gift giving God of prayer or of plenty. I don't have time. This is great. I love how it ends. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest the river with thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God. It's full of just listen to all the images. It's the river of God that's enriching it. It's, it's the water of God that's visiting it. it. It's full of water. It's God who did this to prepare them for corn. And he provided it, he provided for it. Look at verse 10. Thou waterest the ridges thereof, thereof abundantly. Thou settlest the furrows thereof. Thou makest it soft with showers. Thou blessest the springing thereof. You crown the year with thy goodness and the paths drop fatness. That's just a weird phrase. Verse 12. They drop this big, fat raindrops. That, like, you seem like big, not like sprinkles. I mean like big, large raindrops are just dropping on the pastures of the wilderness. They're taking dry things and giving them life. Little hills, they rejoice on every side. When, when, when it comes down, all of the earth is, is reaping the benefit thereof. Pastures are clothed with flocks, valleys thereof are covered with corn. They shout for joy, they also sing. The gift-giving God of plenty. David has given us an image of the abundant surplus of our God. God never runs out. He never lacks supply. He's never in need. He always runs in the black. He always has a surplus in the account. And God is constantly, consistently, regularly pouring out these good things in your life and in mine. And it is the valley, and it is the sheep, and it is the corn, and it is the harvest, it is the plant life and animal life that all sing to the goodness, greatness, plenteous of our God. Our God loves to overdo it. That's what he's saying. We do not serve a stingy, tight-fisted God. We serve a God who loves to fill our cup and cause it to overflow again and again and again and again. We realize all that God has actually done for us. I tremble to think in my life, most of the time I don't really understand all that God's done for me. This happens to me often. I go to the grocery store, get something at the grocery store. I go to the checkout line. I try to go one of the self-checkout lines. The self-checkout lines are full. There's like six of them, but only one of them works. So then there's like 18 people waiting for the one that works. So I make my way over to the two checkout registers that are open. I get in the express lane because I only have a few items, but the person in front of me has like 27 items and it clearly says 15. So I stand there and I let them know that I'm irritated about them being in this line and I huff. I 
I puff like the big bad wolf. I say things like passive aggressively like, man, I'm glad this 15 item check lane is open right now. I stand there and wait and wait and it has to be like, you know, wait 10 minutes to get checked out of the grocery store. So while I wait 10 minutes, I pull out my phone because I'm a good Christian and I like to redeem the time because the days are evil. So I stand there redeeming the time on my smartphone waiting to check out with my eight items and I get frustrated because the page won't load fast enough and I have three bars. This clearly says LTE and it's not refreshing. Why is it not refreshing? And then I have to wait like 45 seconds for the page to refresh. I mean, all in all, I have to wait about 12 minutes to get checked out of the grocery store. And it's irritating. We live with a sense of entitlement. It never dawns on me, not even for a second, that I just walked through about an acre of food of which I didn't plant, I didn't water, I didn't harvest, I didn't do anything to get. I just walked in, pushed a cart that had wheels on it, albeit one wheel never works correctly. But I just pushed a cart to a row of 50 different kinds of cereal and 30 different flavors of syrup. And it never dawns on me to go, wow, God is raining down plenty all around me. I just want to know why they didn't have 51 kinds. And how in the world could they possibly not have the best kind of peanut butter? Or why didn't they have the double stuffed Oreo cookies? Or why in the world would you ever sell out of blueberry Pop-Tarts? I just go down the row, push stuff into my little basket, walk up to a register, stick a card in the machine, a bunch of little gremlins, say it's okay, and then I walk out angry because I had to wait 12 minutes. Do we realize all God's given to us? And have we, in response to God's goodness, praised him for his plenty? We live in unparalleled bounty. We have more than any human beings that have ever lived in the history of the world. but I want more gifts, more plenty, more bounty. Oh, how easy it is to love the gift and not the giver. Oh, how easy it is to develop a heart of entitlement and not a heart of gratitude. Oh, how easy it is to never stop and thank God 
for all he provided for you just in this one day today. That those who see God as a gift-giving God of plenty, as a miracle-working God of power, and as a grace-hearing God of prayer, they have two things about them that are true. They are grateful and they are generous. They are grateful and they are generous. The invitation is simple. How big is your God? And have you told him thank you for all he's done for you? Yeah, but there's a big mountain right now. I know he, he sits over all the mountains. Yeah, but I'm, but I'm on some turbulent water. I know, but he can still it at any moment. Yeah, but, but there's, there's cruel people in my life saying mean things. You know, all the nations are submissive to him as the oceans or the mountains. Our God is a big, great, generous God. And our response as his people should be to rejoice, be grateful, and be generous with all he's done for us.